This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. This is Lord of Life. There is a place for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. First reading is from Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Holy wisdom, holy word. The second reading is from Romans, the third chapter. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Holy wisdom, holy word. The Holy Gospel according to John, the eighth chapter. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my way, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying, You will be made free? Jesus answered them, 
Very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The gospel of the Lord. Well, let's see where this goes. Reformation Sunday. At least when I was growing up, this was a time when uh, congregation members would be encouraged to put on red. Uh, We'd come and sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, as loudly as human lungs can sing it. And the whole thing had a little bit of a feeling of a football game or, or something. We wear the team colors and sing the team song and just be glad that we somehow weren't like all those other ones, especially those Catholics. It wasn't that long ago, was it? I mean, some of our older members here must remember, it wasn't that long ago that the idea of our son or daughter marrying a Catholic was just a little bit off color to be discouraged Well, we've come a long way since then, I think. Not least because we've learned a little bit of humility. As happens so often with anyone that we put up on a pedestal. Pedestals are slippery places to live. And we have a habit of falling off them. And even Martin Luther, our glorious ancestor, hasn't fared quite so well through history as we might have hoped. We see his clay feet. We find that he's not the glorious hero, the faultless saint that perhaps we might have hoped. But he was curious. And he was sincere. And he wanted to know the truth. And I think that is what Reformation Sunday is about. It's about pursuing the truth. And in Martin Luther's case, it started by pursuing words and by learning the power of words. Martin Luther, as I'm sure most of you know the story, was an incredibly earnest young man who did whatever he did with an unusual ferocity. And so when he came to the monastery, he pursued that equally as earnestly as he had done everything else in his life. And he struggled because he couldn't seem to do it well. Now from those outside looking in, he seemed to be an exemplary monk. Following the rule to a fault, confessing his sins, doing penance, seeking forgiveness. But inside he knew that he could never quite put his spirit at ease. 
because of the God that he knew. The God that he knew was the God that he found portrayed through words. It was a God who, in Romans, the first chapter, was said to be a just God who made us just. And the picture that this painted for Luther was a God obsessed with justice who then looked to us to also do justice. And woe betide us if we were unable to do that. So Martin Luther threw himself against that stone over and over again, wounding himself in spirit again and again because he knew what all of us come to know at some point, which is we also don't live well on a pedestal. That we don't have to scratch very deeply to discover each other's clay feet, to discover the dirt that clings to any of us. But Martin Luther came along when the dark ages were drawing to a close and the age of enlightenment was just starting, which roughly was marked by the fall of Constantinople in the east. When Constantinople fell in the east, the Roman Empire fell into, well, the last bits of the Roman Empire fell into ruin. And scholars from the east, therefore, Christian scholars from the east, fled to the west, away from the oncoming wave of Islam. And they brought with them some of these original documents that they had in the original languages, documents in Greek and in Hebrew, which shed new light on the gospel that Luther was familiar with, the gospel that had come to him through the Latin Vulgate, which the church had embraced for generations. And as a professor in Wittenberg, he had access to these documents and he started comparing them to the texts that he had and discovered the words weren't quite the same. That the word that had been translated justice in Romans could also be translated righteousness. And without going into a whole bunch of Greek and Latin, which would even put me to sleep, what he discovered was that what it was really saying was not that there is a just God who demands justice of us, but rather that there is a righteous God who makes us righteous through his righteousness. And all of a sudden, all of that guilt fell away. All of that anger that he felt toward a God who seemed to demand the impossible of him fell away. And he found that for the first time in his life, he was able to love God. For the first time, this scripture that had come to him came to him not as judgment, but as gospel. As good news. And I think this is 
where we find the heart of what this work of reformation is about. The gospel must always come to us as gospel. And if it doesn't come to us as good news, if we hear it rather as judgment, then maybe we need to look a little deeper. Maybe we need to dig a little further into these words to try to discover a forgiving, a loving, and affirming God. This one little word that Martin Luther found an alternate translation for set off a firestorm in the church. Up to this time, in order to copy something, people had to, had to write it by hand. They had to write scripture by hand. But now, this printing press came along. Kind of like our equivalent of Facebook. So all of a sudden, Martin Luther could tweet this stuff out there, and it would get copied and go all over the place. And he was savvy enough to know how to use it. So that power of words started getting out to other people who also compared, who also read, who also learned. And what came to be called the Protestant Reformation swept across Europe and changed the face, for better or worse, of the church forever. The unfortunate part of it was that it split us into all these little groups clinging to our own little bit of gospel, forever arguing with each other over what is right, what is true, all of us claiming to have some special insight that underscores our position and undermines the others. But the gospel should show us that the truth is forever larger and deeper than we are. Because we are the created, not the creator. And the creator is the author of truth, is the definition of truth, is the sole original of truth. So we are always the ones who are tailing along afterward, trying to be drawn ever more into the heart of the gospel. Ever more trying to reform our understanding, reform our approach, and deepen and broaden our perception of the truth. Too often we try to claim that truth as a mighty fortress in which to retreat and defend against all comers. Rather than listen to the truth that they might bring and to ask ourselves if maybe they might have a piece to contribute to the truth as well. Because the funny thing about God, for all of our attempts to defend the truth against all comers and in 
in hymnody, in prayer, I'm always uncomfortable when I come across, as we did this morning, that phrase, Lord, defend us against the enemies of the gospel. Because too often the enemy I discover is myself, who wants to defend too small a version of the gospel. Whereas our Lord is forever drawing us together, calling people near and far from the four ends of the earth to come and be part of the one body, the one church, the one truth. And every time I glimpse that larger truth, I need to step back and adopt a more humble spirit. And to remember that this church is God's creation and not my own. That God did not call me to be the church, but God called us to be the church. God works in I was going to say God works in groups, but I would broaden that to say God simply works in the plural. He calls us to be together and being together to read the word of God, to hear the word of God, to question the word of God, and to, through that questioning, to discover an ever deeper truth of who God is, of what the church is, and who I am. And in doing so, we are called constantly to reform ourselves and the words that we use. For words have power. Just as they did in Martin Luther's times when one word was enough to open up his eyes to reinterpret all of Scripture. So now the words we use have power. To divide or to unite, to demonize or to glorify, to spread hatred or to spread understanding, to close down discussion or to open up discussion, to embrace or to stiff arm the words that we use every day go out into the world like magic incantations and bring things into being. If we call someone stupid enough times, by God, they'll believe it. If we call someone blessed enough times, by God, they'll start to believe it. If we call ourselves guilty enough times, we'll believe it. If we come into contact with this gospel and dare to believe that God, who is righteous, has made us righteous, enough times we may believe it. And the gospel will have found yet one more convert, one more member of the church. The church will grow just that much more. And we will take one more step toward that glorious kingdom of God, which is where the truth resides in its fullness, in its beauty, and in all of its glory. Amen.